0: Father, you are so good. You have been so good to us. You have been so faithful to us. And so this morning, we continue to declare to you your goodness. And we're grateful to be together. We're grateful to be in your presence, to worship you, to be with one another. And I pray for each one of our lives to change this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You just stay standing. We will read the scripture. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you, unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of God. You You may be seated. Thanks be to God for the word that says torture. That's good. Um, this morning at about uh, 7 o'clock, I got in my car, started driving uh, to uh, the first church I go to, uh, Starbucks, and, um, <laughs> and that Good Good Father song was on, and I've really, maybe I'm late to the game, I guess I've really never um, really entered that song, and so I bought it, and for an hour, and over an hour, that song was on repeat as I was uh, preparing, so I'm pretty fired up today. We're going to have fun. Alright. So, if you've been to our home, uh, some of you have, but I'll take you on a, a virtual tour. Every single room in our house has books in them. Every single room has stories. And I'd like to tell you that that's my design feature, uh, but I, I married into this, uh, married to Jenny who has just a love for books. In fact, before we even had children, she's a teacher and continues to be an educator, we had, I think, the equivalent of the children's section of the Pasadena Public Library as a part of our home. It was very confusing for people when they would come over. Why do you have all these Clifford books? Because uh, we love books. And, and in our kitchen, we have tons of cookbooks. And in our even in our dining room, there's bookshelves. And in our back room, there's bookshelves. And there's stacks of books on each side um, of our bed. And, and then in the kids' room is children's books area one and there's three of them throughout the house and we are a family that loves books we love stories stories of all kinds so there's children's books there's cookbooks there's history books there's theology books there's nonfiction, there's fiction there's adventures there's my favorite which are like biographies and they 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 just go all over our home and in different seasons of our life books play and stories play a very different role and if I'm honest right now, if I was to assess what is the role of the story, what is the role of the book in our family, there's two main ways they are used. One, for our kids to go to sleep. At night, after we have our regular routine, most nights, 90% of the, night, the time, the lights go off, and then a book light comes on, and Jenny will read to them um, a longer story, a chapter book, an adventure. And it's the last thing that they hear after we say our prayers, don't worry. Um, And they will, most of the time, fall soundly asleep. And the story is used to help them sleep. For Jenny and I, the story right now, honestly, it's not a season of necessarily learning. It's a season that a book and a story is used to distract us a little bit. That at the end of a day, and end of very full days, and just like your life, our life is full, there's something about tucking into a book that we're able to escape a little bit. We're able to leave the the realities of this life and the responsibilities of our home and the things that uh, weigh on us so heavily and through the story, we are able to be distracted a little bit and to escape into another world. This is our final week of the Jesus Christ Storyteller series. This is it. And I can't help but think as we just listen to a story that Jesus told and continues to tell about the differences between how stories are used in my home and how Jesus uses his stories. Where in my house the story is used for sleep, the stories of Jesus are used to wake us up. Where in my house the stories are used to distract us from life, The stories of Jesus are told to focus our lives. There is a big difference coming to a story to find distraction and to fall asleep versus coming to a story to wake up and to find focus. And I think you can agree with me that throughout this summer, as we've looked at these stories of Jesus, we see that if we're honest. These aren't happy go lucky stories. They're stories that have drama, that have consequences, that have images that come to mind, and all of it used by Jesus so that those those who hear these stories to wake up, to wake up to the reality of God in this world and God in their life and to focus our lives on what is most important. Friends, following Jesus is about waking up and focusing our lives on his ways, and his call on our lives. And so today, we're gonna just do that. Essentially what we've read in Matthew 18 is a story of mercy. It's a story about mercy. We love mercy. Christians, you and I, church people, we sing so many songs about mercy. We have so many prayers about mercy. We are mercy loving people. But what is true in this story and what is true in our life is that most of the time, if we're honest, we celebrate and love the idea of mercy for us individually, but we struggle to love mercy for others we love the idea of of being in front of the king and receiving the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus we love that part of mercy but we like Peter struggle to be the kind of people who not just receive mercy but who distribute mercy as well What's been going on in this chapter, we've been in it for a few weeks now, Jesus is preaching and talking about mercy, 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 forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And Peter, this question that seems like an innocent question or just a random question, it comes in the context of Jesus saying things like, so the children, right, the ones that you have disregarded in this world, in this life, mercy, There'll be a hundred sheep, as Perry helped us last week, and one will go astray. We should probably write that one off. No, Jesus says, mercy, go after that sheep. That sheep matters, go. And right before Peter's question, the question comes up about what do we do with a brother or sister in the congregation, in the church, a fellow believer who sins. Surely when someone among us sins, then that will be the opportunity to cast them away and cast them out, and Jesus says, no, mercy, mercy. In fact, here's some specific ways about how you're going to go confront that person and extend mercy to them. And so when Peter says, how many times am I supposed to give my, forgive my brother who sins against me up to seven times, it's in the context of him being a little exhausted, most likely, at this mercy, 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 mercy. Peter's question is loaded. It is not a simple take it at face value question. There is a lot going on below the surface. If you have kids or you've been around kids, you know what loaded questions are. The one that happened, I've waited till the last minute at 3.15 p.m. yesterday. One of my children says to me, did you know that your other son has been climbing on the trash can to get the snacks down that we're not allowed to eat? My son was not generally interested in knowing if I knew that or not. It was a loaded question. He's letting me know his brother is doing something that he shouldn't be doing, and he's getting something he shouldn't be having, and really he's asking me that in his righteousness, in his obedience, if he can get the snack. And by the way, brother's the one over here messing up. It's a loaded question. We know these kinds of questions. Peter's question is loaded. There are tons of implications of what's going on in Peter's question. Let me point out just three of them. First implication of Peter's question. Something is wrong. It implies that something is wrong with the other person. The statement is about the sin of the other person and that sin that has been done to Peter. Peter's question assumes that his take on the situation and the other person is correct. We know these kinds of questions, right? Did you know your brother's on the trash can getting the snacks that we shouldn't be eating? What seems like a potentially honest question about life and obedience is loaded with accusation and fault. There's another implication of Peter's question. There's an implication that Peter is about fed up and done with this other person. Peter is frustrated. He's already forgiven him seven times. How much longer am I supposed to do this, Jesus? This person keeps messing up. I'm frustrated. I've had enough with this person and the sin they are doing to, to me. I'm frustrated with this person. Surely all this mercy talk you've been doing, there's going to be a point where I can write this person off, where they will cross the line, where they will get to a point of of no return and it will be allowed for me to walk away from them. The biggest implication in Peter's question is Peter's self-righteousness. Think about it through the lens of the seven times through that. So this person has sinned against me. The first time I forgave him, Lord, Jesus, did what you told me to do. Did it second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time. Seven times I've been really obedient. This other person is the one who's doing all the bad stuff. I've been doing the forgiving. I didn't climb on the trash can. Peter's saying, he is the sinner. I've done the forgiving. This question isn't necessarily about the other person, This question is about Peter too. He's asking how much longer he's supposed to keep doing the right thing. Peter is in the right, he is frustrated, and he has followed the rules, the script of forgiveness, and it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Is this mercy and forgiveness thing supposed to keep going on forever, even when I'm right, even when they're wrong? Seriously, Jesus? It keeps applying, I have to keep living this way. Self-righteousness seen in both the accusation of the other and in the self-proclaimed faithfulness of Peter himself. And lest we look at Peter's question and sense judgment towards him, we ask these questions all the time, whether we have the courage to say them verbally or not, they live inside of us. Jesus gives a very clear answer. And the answer is, yes, you keep forgiving, that forgiveness and mercy is endless. There's nothing, you you can argue, some of you might argue, 77, that's really not that many times. I don't see anywhere else in scripture where there's this idea that we are supposed to walk around with a sheet of paper and hash mark the wrongs that people do, and when we get to 78, then you're in the clear, you can walk away. The exaggeration of Jesus to 77 times was a way of saying endlessly. You're just getting started, Peter. Seven times, you've got a whole bunch more. Jesus says simply and plainly that God forgives us endlessly and we ought to be the kind of people who extend mercy endlessly towards one another. This is such a simple answer but it's such a hard reality, isn't it? It's so hard that Jesus uses a story to help drive the point home, to wake Peter up, to wake his disciples up to the way of living that is obedient to Jesus. So he tells this story. It's 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 a pretty easy story to follow. There's a king and there's a servant, and the servant owes the king more than he will ever be able to pay. And so there's this interaction where the king is calling in the servants to settle the debts and and this person goes before the king and there's no way he can pay back what he owes and he falls to his knees and he asks for more time and instead of just getting more time, the king in 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 his rule and in his reign extends mercy to the servant and forgives all the debt. This is a great story. This is a story we love individually, right? We identify this as the gospel message. We hear this story, and honestly, we, we go right to the cross, right? We see how this goes. When they were hearing the story, this was the first time. They didn't have the context of the victory that was going to come. They didn't have the, the idea of the cross and the payment of what, what that payment for the forgiven debt was going to be. This was a radical story to them, and it's a radical story to us, because in the story, the king is God, and we are the servant, and you and I, just by being human and not by being God, we have a debt in this life, a debt of difference between us and God. And there is no way on our own that you and I will ever be able to pay the king what we owe him. But the king in his love and in his mercy says, I forgive it all, you're debt free, you're good. We, this is the gospel, amen? And we love the story. We love being the servant in front of the king and getting our debt forgiven. The only problem with this story is there's uh, more servants and another debt. And so we and this servant leave the presence of the king having been forgiven, having been recipients of mercy, and we leave and we go and somebody owes us something and we start collecting. Give me what you owe me. The irony is clear. The point is clear. That Jesus calls you and I in in front of his presence and there's a debt to be paid. He has forgiven that debt. We are debt free. And now we are called to be the kind of people who extend that kind of mercy and grace to other people. So the story continues. He doesn't just want to get paid. The guy can't pay him. So he puts him in jail. And then the the chatter happens. And and we get called back in to be in the presence of the king. And he goes, what are you thinking? I just granted you forgiveness. I just canceled your debt. And then there's this part we don't like talking about that much. Where there seems to be some consequences. Where Jesus says, uh, so the king... Threw the person in prison, tortured him. Well, we don't. It's not happy stories. It's a warning. It's a warning to Peter. It's a warning to us to not be the kind of person who just receives mercy for themselves, but to be the person who distributes mercy around. And there are consequences for not living this way. So living in this story for a week, I have uh, uh, two challenges. I think there are two clear challenges for you and I. And the first one is this. Similarity over superiority. Similarity over superiority. Part of the human condition and part of what is happening in this story is what has happened throughout all time and continues to happen today that we as human beings love to find ways to separate ourselves from one another. We love and and are able, just in our sinful state, to somehow find ways to feel better and more superior than someone else. Whether it's you've forgiven somebody seven times and they haven't done any forgiveness, so I'm more spiritual, or whether it's the narratives that are happening all over this globe, in different countries all over the world, that around racial and ethnic lines, that there is a superior kind of person and race and identity. And those aren't just narratives that are happening across this world. They're narratives that happen in our hearts and even in our own land. Part of being human, part of being a sinful human, is that we will find ways to not be similar with one another, and we will find ways to feel superior from one another. And in this story, we hear Jesus say, you are all the same. The debt is all debt. In John chapter 8, there's the story of, of the religious people. So it'd be like if Jesus was in town now, and nobody was coming, or our attendance dropped because everybody left Lake Avenue to go hear Jesus, so all the local pastors get together, and they go, who's this guy taking our audience? So let's, let's, let's trick him. So they find a woman. I mean, think about how terrorizing this is. They find a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. They drag her, throw her before Jesus, and they're trying to trap him to trip up his theology. And they say, what should we do with this woman? And the law says we're able to kill her for this offense. And Jesus, if you know the story, he doesn't respond right away. He goes down into the sand, writes some things. We don't know what he wrote. But at some point he says, let the person here without sin throw the first stone. And the way the story goes is these religious leaders, these pastors start leaving one by one by one because the reality of what Jesus told them is the reality to us today, that we are all similar. Whether you're a church leader or you're someone in adultery, you are all human. You are all broken. You're all sinful. You're all unworthy. Despite any narrative that says something different, friends, part of being a human being in this world is that we are similar and that no one is superior. Galatians 3.28 drives this home. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, neither male nor Nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If this story teaches us anything, it teaches us that we are similar and that we are all debtors, and there is no debt that is bigger, greater than anyone else's. The second thing, the second challenge from this text is that we are to reciprocate what we have received. It's so clear in this story. It's so clear that the servant's before the king, and, and he's, his debt is forgiven, and then he leaves the presence of the king and is unable to reciprocate the very thing that he just received. And when it comes to mercy, brothers and sisters, you and I have been given so much mercy. And the call on our lives is not to just people, be people who take mercy for ourselves, but to be the kind of people who let the mercy that comes into us flow out of us to one another. We are called to reciprocate what we have received. Colossians 3, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. I don't want to make light of how difficult and how costly it is to extend mercy and forgiveness. It is really hard. There's real debt There's real sin. There are real ways in which you and I have participated in and been hurt as a result of being broken, sinful people. So this call on our life to to extend mercy, to reciprocate what we received, this is not a happy-go-lucky, so everybody leave church now and just reciprocate mercy to everybody you see and it'll be very easy for you. This is hard stuff. Mercy is costly. Mercy is painful. The forgiveness and mercy that you and I have been given by God came at a price that we will talk about in a moment as we celebrate communion. It cost God his own son to extend mercy. So we ought to be prepared that for us to extend mercy, it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. And it's not going to feel right all the time, but it's what we're called to do. No one deserves mercy. If we deserved mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. Mercy is costly. Mercy is painful. Mercy is not an isolated spiritual gift that some of us have and that others don't. It's one of the things that drives me a little crazy about some of these spiritual gift inventories. I think they're very useful. But I didn't test well for mercy, so I don't need to be a merciful person. I'm just a leader. (laughs) Mercy is not an isolated individual gift for just some of us in the community. Mercy is a way of living, friends. Mercy is a way of living. You and I, the more we follow Jesus we should be coming more and more merciful. Simply put, reciprocate what you have received. So see, see the stories of Jesus? They're, they're, they don't just put us to rest. They wake us up, and they point out to us how we are not living as we ought I've been thinking a lot, how, do, how might we apply this this week? And the first question I have for you is, who are you withholding mercy from? Is there anybody in your family? Is there anybody at your workplace? Is there anybody even in this room that has hurt you, that has wronged you, and you are withholding mercy and forgiveness to them? I feel like one of the ways that uh, has been pointed out to me in preparation for this message is that we in the church have a bit of a hoarding problem. We hoard mercy for ourselves. We love to sing streams of mercy never ceasing, but as long as that stream is coming to me, whether it goes past me and gets to other people I don't put as much time or thought into that. I just take all that mercy for myself. Friends, I'm afraid when I look at my own life, I'm speaking to myself, that there are far too many times where I am guilty of being a mercy hoarder than a mercy giver. Peter was a mercy hoarder. His question implied that. So the question is how is this possible? How is it that we can be around the presence of Jesus where we can talk about our debt being forgiven, where we can center on the cross and we can think about the mercy of God in our lives and still be mercy hoarders? And, friends, let me extend the story Jesus tells, and I think this is how it works. The first servant's relationship in the story to the king was just about his debt getting forgiven, he only went to the king to get his debt settled. And when our relationship with Jesus Christ is just about getting our personal debt settled over and over and over and over again, it's a transactional relationship that only receives from Jesus the benefits of Jesus. And don't we want to be the kind of servants who not just receive the benefits of Jesus, but go, I want to spend some time with this king. Why did he do that? What makes somebody rule and reign like that? How, did he even, how was that even an option for him to extend mercy to me? My concern and my fear for even my own life is that when our primary relationship with the king is just about our debt, we miss out on the richness of relationship with the king. And the king is calling you and I not just to bow before him and to receive the mercy from him. He has more for us in this life. He has a relationship, a love relationship that he wants to cultivate between us and him. But if you're not around the king for a relationship, then you're not going to get the king's orders for mercy. You're only going to receive the benefit. I heard a statistic yesterday that was uh, through a research project of the American Bible Society in conjunction with the Barna Group, and this last bit of research this is good research. That only 17% of people in the United States, so church people, and unchurched people, only 17% are regularly, daily reading the Scripture. Friends, this is how we connect with the King. This is how we see how the King, who the King is. This is how we understand how the king thinks about things. This is where we get our orders to live. And if only 17% of us are regularly spending time in the Bible, then why would we be confused that we're not extending mercy because it's through the stories of the scripture that we see the heart of God, we see that he's a merciful God, and he calls you and I to be just like him. So we we hoard mercy because we're not spending time with the mercy giver. We keep the relationship really narrow, and the living God is saying, not only do I want you to be in my presence to forgive your debt, but when you leave and you live in front of this world, you're to do the very things that I do. When we don't spend time with the king, there's a lot of confusion that can happen. We fail to recognize that the king speaks about a lot of things. And the king throughout the scriptures is calling those who are reading and those who are devout to live a certain way. And not just the stories of Jesus. He is saying, wake up, wake up. This is how I want you to live in this world. But we wake up over all kinds of other stuff. There are other voices that wake us up, that get our attention, if we're honest, more often than the king. How's that work? Happened this week. I'm, I'm just using it. My phone started going crazy on Wednesday. All these push notifications from the different news apps I have that a political candidate for president was going to make a speech around immigration. And, and I'm starting to wake up a little bit. Oh, and then, then the, he makes the speech, and then I get more push notifications that there's going to be a response from the other candidate. And then, and then that response gets a response. I'm getting all these push notifications. And it is possible that at the end of the day that some of us spent more time understanding what two presidential candidates think about something than we've spent time what Jesus thinks about something. That's crazy. That's the way, that's the way this, this tricky world works is that it makes us believe that there are things, there are things happening outside of what the king has talked about. And that we, are, we just kind of like got to walk around and go, oh good, at five o'clock I can finally start thinking about this because somebody running for president is going to talk about it. And the whole time, there's an embedded narrative and scriptures that God shares his heart And we can read that through the very beginning in the first five books of the Bible. It can be reaffirmed in the prophets. It can be reaffirmed in the teachings of Jesus. It can be lived out in the early church with Paul. And we have to wake up to the reality that the king has given us orders, and those orders are to extend mercy. But if we're not in the presence of the king, we're not going to get the orders. So similar, same day. Scrolling through my news, and I got to scroll a long time to get something worth reading. <laughs> that there's this little piece, and it's completely related. There's this, just this little piece of information that came out this week that UNICEF reports that, I, I need you to hear this, 26,000 unaccompanied children, 26,000 unaccompanied children in the first six months of 2016, have found themselves at the United States border. Unaccompanied children from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. 26,000 unaccompanied children in the first six months of 2016 have found themselves at the border of the United States. I have an eight-year-old. He doesn't go unaccompanied anywhere. 26,000. But I'm, my push notifications, they want me to listen to this theoretical talk. And this is supposed to inform something, and all the while, 26,000 children. And I just wonder if the king might have something to say about that. If that surely, in, at least in this instance, we would love mercy. Surely in this instance, the king has spoken, right? But if we're not spending time with the king, we get really confused. And I'll tell you this, the less time you spend with the king, the more judgmental we can become and the less merciful we can become. And there are real consequences for this way of living. Friends, we talk all the time about mercy and justice, and the scriptures call us to be the kind of people who love mercy. The truth is some of us withhold mercy from someone in our family. We withhold mercy when we think about the way the world works. We have false narratives about who generates conversations when the king of the universe has started tons of conversations about the way of living in this world. And the call on your life and on my life is the same call. We are all similar. There's no one more superior than someone else. And that you and I, as Christ followers, are supposed to reciprocate what we have received. I wish it was easier. I wish it was easier for my own life. But my encouragement to you and to me, and I I listened to a sermon, um, I reread a sermon that I gave about nine months ago. I did a little search because I don't want to, and I think you trust me, I don't just talk about, I'm not, I have no political agenda. But I wanted to do a search of my sermons to go, when have I said something about the election or president? And the only thing I said was a few months ago that I could find, I'm sure you'll let me know that I'm wrong, um, <laughs> was that my greatest fear going into this election season was that it was possible for us as the followers of Jesus to spend more time studying political platforms and listening to political speeches than studying the word of God and being in the presence of God. And I still share that concern for my own life, and I share, still share that concern for the Church of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a time to be in front of the King, to get our orders from the King, and to be faithful to the King. And guess what? The King has forgiven us, and he calls us to live that forgiveness with one another. I'm going to call our communion stewards up because. It's only appropriate that we would end this sermon with a very tangible way of being reminded of the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that you and I have been given. So on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends, his disciples, And he shares this final meal with them where he takes the bread and says to them, after passing it around, after giving thanks, he says, take and eat. This is my body, which will be broken for you. And then he takes the cup, this glass of wine, moves it around and says, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement. It's for the forgiveness of sins and it is the shed blood that I will shed very soon. So, whereas in Matthew 18, we hear about a story of a king who just grants forgiveness and it happens, the cost of our mercy and the cost of forgiveness in our lives comes at the crushing body and the broken, the broken body and the streaming blood of our Lord and Savior. Mercy is costly. And he tells his followers to remember that sacrifice, to do it often. To come together around the meal to remember what mercy cost. And because Jesus knows us, I think he wants us to do it often because he knows that we can be like the first servant. That we could be very forgetful of what it cost. So forgetful that it doesn't apply to our life outside. So this morning, we will celebrate. We will redo what Jesus has asked and we will partake of communion together. After I pray and the music starts, you're, if you're able, please come forward. Grab the elements and go back to your seat. We're gonna eat as a family. We're gonna eat together, so don't eat and drink yet. If you have a gluten allergy, all the way to my right is our gluten-free table. And if you're unable to get up for any reason, just stay in your seat, and at some point, our stewards will come to you and you make eye contact with them. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for loving us so much and loving mercy so much that you would send Jesus Christ, your one and only son, into this world and that the costly and painful death that he took on was so that we might be forgiven and free. We remember that brave, heroic, redeeming act now as we partake in communion together. Amen. Please come.